Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Today's episode, My Disability is Part of My Journey, featuring Lindsay Nebaker. Welcome to MDASH, Lindsay. Nice to meet you. Well, thank you for having me. What are some of the words you use to describe yourself in terms of your identities? Well, first and foremost, I would say in identifying myself, um, I would say that I'm human. I am also um, identify myself as a woman or what um, some people would refer to me as a cisgender female. So my pronouns that I, I use are she, her. My sexual orientation is, is queer. So even though my, I'm quite um, certain with my gender identity, I have some fluidity when it comes to identifying my sexual orientation. And also, I am an individual with a disability. I was diagnosed with autism at age two. There are some people who would describe themselves as having autism, and there's some people that would describe themselves as being autistic. So person first versus identity first Mm -hmm. language. And um, with me personally, I interchange the two. And so I, I do refer to myself both as autistic and a person with autism or person diagnosed with autism. And really the best and most correct way to um, figure out how to best address a person on the autism spectrum is to ask that individual how they prefer to be um, referred to as it's, it's just, it works the same way as someone um, who identify, you know, however they identify their gender. Um, When we ask them what their preferred pronouns they want us to use, it's the, it works the same way with um, people with disabilities as you ask them how they want to be referred to as. It's a great tip and a great reminder also that identities and labels are things that only the person can claim for themselves and that it's not anyone else's place to attach um, words or descriptors to somebody else. So I, I really appreciate you um, giving that clarification and also that reminder you use the word queer to describe your sexual orientation. And I think when I would talk about labels, I think about that's a great example of a word that we never want for myself as a lesbian. I never want someone applying the term queer to describe someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a word that I'm really comfortable with a person describing themselves. Um, And so it's a great example of how um, words really have power and, and people need to choose the words that they want to use to describe themselves. Absolutely. I think the key to empowerment is to give that person the power to, you know, um, choose how they want to identify themselves, mm-hmm. whatever labels they have. So you talked about a number of different identities. How have those identities influenced your thoughts and feelings about healthcare? Well, I would say that I've had kind of a very mixed journey. Uh, when it comes to um, healthcare and navigating my identities through that that journey, and it started out at very very young age. Um, as I mentioned, I was diagnosed very young, uh, around age two, and 
right after that, I was heavily involved in a lot of early intervention. Um, I had worked a lot with extensively with a with an OT, with a speech language pathologist, um, and I had always also had kept getting checked on over the years um, with follow-ups to my diagnosis. Um, and at first, I would say I, I, it wasn't something I really paid attention to so much. But what I did really notice was that even before my parents told me um, that I had the diagnosis, I felt different. And I could tell when I was interacting with other kids um, my age that I didn't seem to fit in. And I wasn't quite sure why. At the same time, I also noticed even before I was aware of what was going on through my early intervention and therapies was that I was interacting a lot with um, healthcare professionals who were working with me. And I wasn't quite sure whether I really felt like a kid or more like a, a research study um, project. Um, I, I sometimes felt like an experiment. Um, although I, I will say I did, I was very privileged in that um, I was very well taken care of and I did receive a lot of um, supports and accommodations along the way on my journey. And um, initially, when I was younger, um, my parents would disclose to all of my the healthcare providers that we interacted with about my diagnosis um, so that they were aware when they were treating me and working with me. Um, even my even even doctors who um, were not very familiar with autism, just so they had an awareness of if I had a meltdown or if mm -hmm. I had some sort of sensory sensitivity issues and reactions and responses. But eventually, when I was on my own, um, actually, I would say starting my adolescence, I started to get to a point where I um, was starting to see these see healthcare providers on my own, and I made a deliberate choice to not disclose my disability. Um, and it, I had to ask myself every time I would go in to see a healthcare provider, is my disclosure of my disability relevant to the issues that are being addressed? And I found that well, technically, I would say, actually, it, it is very relevant. Um, I would say it's very relevant when it comes to my own experience when I enter into um, a, a doctor's office, that there's, there's a lot of sensory issues that I experience with the lights, with the temperature, with the sounds. Um, and it just, it just is very much of a sensory overwhelming thing. But what happened was that when I was growing up in the, in the eighties and the nineties at the time, I wasn't really surrounded by a lot of positive conversations around disability. So while I was surrounded by a family who was very supportive of me and the providers that did help me, 
as far as our community was involved and our conversations were involved around disability, I felt very uh, ashamed of being autistic. And it led me to feeling like I didn't feel confident enough to speak up for the accommodations that I needed whenever I was in, say, healthcare settings. The same thing uh, applied to when I was at school and also in my works and jobs and employment situation, but this also applied as well to the healthcare experiences. The only exception I have made with that is my mental health providers. So every time I do meet up with a therapist or I meet up with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I do decide in those cases to disclose my disability diagnosis. And the reason I do that is because when I am in therapy, I am going through a journey of understanding myself and trying to understand my story and where um, the roots of my responses and emotions are coming from. And I feel like if I didn't mention autism into that conversation, I wouldn't move very far and progress in my journey. And so even though, say, the therapist I would be working with may not have a specialty in working in the field of autism, I still am willing to educate them on this. And I also am very willing to talk openly about it because I feel like that is part of my journey. Well, it sounds like you, and tell me if I'm, if I'm getting this right, it almost sounds like in that situation, when you're interacting with a therapist, your disclosure, it's worthwhile because you need them to understand that piece of you in order for you to understand yourself and your journey. And so the disclosure is worth the risk in that situation. It, it, am I getting that right or missing something? Yes, I, I think you are getting it right. Um, yes, disclosure definitely is, um, I feel crucial to the therapeutic relationship I have with, um, say, any mental health provider I work with. I also feel like that they can understand me better as a client. So for example, then um, if they know about the characteristics of autism, then they would have a better understanding of why I might need the lights a bit more dim in the room or why I might not be able to maintain eye contact with them. So they don't, you know, they know not to force eye contact if I don't want to give them forced eye contact, things like that. Um, why I might need a little bit more time to respond when they ask a question um, because of my processing. So it takes a little bit longer time for me to process answers sometimes. So it's, um, I think it's very beneficial for both um, the therapist and myself when I am choosing to be very open and upfront. Um, sometimes disclosure can feel a bit awkward. Um, it depends on how one responds when I do initially disclose. But Can you give an example of a good response or a bad response? Has there been a time when someone responded in a way that shut you down or made you feel shut down? Well, um, I have been pretty fortunate in the sense that, um, say, if I disclosed to someone, they didn't immediately, um, 
Uh, that's actually a really good question. Uh, how do I um, respond to that? I, I have received awkward responses. So when I have disclosed myself um, to some people, um, say if they were not really expecting it, then um, they sometimes just don't know what to say. Um, they just kind of look at me. They don't really know how to respond because I think they, they freeze and they're not quite sure. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So they say nothing. Right. <laughs> yes. At least those, those particular examples. So, but I also have received some very um, positive responses too. And, and when I say positive, I don't mean... Um, I'm not sure what the word is exactly, but um, I when I when I receive like say a good example of a positive response is not one that's patronizing. Mm -hmm. Patronizing, that's the word. It's one where they, it's like they acknowledge that I have disclosed this part of myself to them. And yet at the same time, that will not change how they perceive me or how they think of me, or they validate disability as a part of my journey through my life. And so they don't necessarily ignore it or take it out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's in the conversation. But it's not the entire focus of the whole conversation because it sounds like they see you as a person. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They see me as, as human. And that's what my quest in life is trying to, um, feel like that I am not an alien in this world because when I do interact with people and I surround myself with people, there are plenty of times that I, do don't quite feel human in comparison. So when you when you talk about about that experience and you talk about also not necessarily disclosing to say your primary health care providers, um, what is it like going to a nurse practitioner or a physician or a, or a physician assistant for care and having them not know? about that piece of you? What's it, does it, what, what does it feel like? Well, on one aspect of it, I feel comforted in knowing that they don't know that piece of me. And I think the reason is because there are just certain interactions, say, if I'm going for a particular issue that doesn't have any relevance to um, being autistic, adding that into the mix and conversation when maybe they're not familiar with autism can sometimes make it feel like there's an awkward aura. Um, it's, it's hard to describe, but it almost makes me feel comforted that say, if I treat this like more like a business interaction where disclosing myself is not necessary then I almost feel like that there's, I, I don't know. I still feel like that I would be treated differently 
and not in a good way. Interesting. I, I, I love the way that you're describing this. Um, and I really appreciate you being willing to try to describe something that is so tough to describe. I was trying to imagine how I might feel and, and it's, it's hard to ever put myself in someone else's shoes, but I was just thinking about if, if I go to the emergency room and I've hurt my ankle, let's say, do I want to take the time to tell them I'm a lesbian? If I think it's completely not relevant to my ankle and I think sometimes there there are situations where you may hold something back because you don't you don't necessarily think it's rele- relevant, but you also worry it could impact how you're treated. Sure. So I think I think I know what you're saying. Is there ever a time when you wish your healthcare providers knew that piece about you? Either like you had mentioned that the the lights and the noise, and I bet the crinkly paper and the mm-hmm. um, you know, all of the things going on in an exam room. Is there, is there ever a time when you wish they did things differently, recognizing that they're pa- that they have a neurodiverse patient population? So not necessarily you having to disclose about yourself, mm-hmm. but is there anything you wish they did differently in the clinical encounter that would be more sensitive to some of those issues? I wish I can walk into a healthcare provider's office one day where I would not feel like that I would have to request certain accommodations to feel balanced. Hmm. I I wish um, I could walk in and there would be, the lights would be dimmed and there would not be any fluorescent lighting and there would be a, a huge fish tank and people would be speaking very calmly to each other instead of chaos and that I would walk into a doctor's office and not be blinded by say the heat fluorescent <laughs> light that usually is, is in these little exam rooms and it, um, that the temperature would be a lot more regulated mm-hmm. and not so cold. And while some doctors are good at this, uh, sometimes not everyone is very good at um, telling you in advance, you know, the step-by-step what Mm -hmm. they're going to do. You know, I'm going to touch you here. Now we're going to do this. I absolutely, absolutely. I I wish that, um, I, I could, that people that worked in the healthcare industry that interact with me knew that about me. I know I have plenty of um, colleagues and friends who are also on the spectrum who do disclose their disability, um, whether it's because they do require more support needs and more communication um, supports and assistance, which is why then um, it's more ne- necessary for them to disclose. who have disclosed themselves in healthcare settings. I have heard both positive and negative um, experiences that they've had with their healthcare providers. So the reason why I was asking about, you know, what do you wish would be different um, is because there are healthcare professionals who listen to this podcast. And one of the things that I hope people take away from every episode is a sense of different ways that they can be more inclusive of working with patients without patients having to disclose things about themselves. So I really appreciate the specificity um, that you gave regarding the ideal clinical setting. And and I think for folks who are not on the spectrum, I would imagine that the clinical setting 
that you described would, would be really pleasant for them as well. So benefits beyond just serving people on the spectrum. And there are actually some um, great resources that have come out in the past um, few years and, and studies and research as well. Um, and one of them I, I would highly recommend um, to look into for, for both the patients and the healthcare providers um, was a study that was headed by Aspire. It's an Academic Autism Spectrum Partnership in Research and Education. And they have a website they created called um, it's autismandhealth.org. And it's a web portal of primary care resources for adults on the spectrum and their primary care providers. So it has so many different things. Like there's resources for healthcare providers where they can ha it has information on autism information and diagnosis and how caring for patients on the autism spectrum and legal and ethical considerations. Um, and then also for patients and supporters of patients, you can actually make a personalized accommodations report, um, you know, tailored to your, to your various needs. And then you provide that to your healthcare provider prior to the appointment. And then also that it, it contains information on, you know, a patient's rights in healthcare because we need to understand our rights because it's just like, you know, we have, it's, you know, we have human, human rights, basic human rights. So, but anyways, it's, it's a fantastic resource. Um, and there's quite a few other resources out there too that are great, but this is one that's very exceptional. I'm so glad you mentioned it. I'll add it to the show notes as well. Um, and the links within there, because it, it sounds like there are a tremendous number of resources there on the website mm -hmm. and resources that both patients and healthcare professionals could really benefit from. Now, you had mentioned that you identify as queer. How has that identity impacted uh, your interactions with healthcare professionals? Surprisingly, in my personal experience, very minimal. And I think because of just my particular experience, um, so I think given the set of privileges that I must acknowledge of being a, being cisgender of even though I do identify as queer, I am married to a cisgender male. Um, so when people see me on the surface level, uh, they don't immediately identify that I, I am on within the LGBTQ spectrum. Mm -hmm. So, it doesn't really ever, hasn't ever really come up in my personal experience. Um, now, I have colleagues who are definitely have very different story um, with this um, that are autistic and also fall along the gender spectrum and sexual orientation spectrum. Um, just so it's just like the autism spectrum. There is a diversity that of gender identity and sexual orientation that I find reside within autistic individuals. But I, um, in my personal experience, I guess I just have not really come across that as much. Um, outside of the healthcare setting, I do have experience with it directly in my family. Um, my father is gay and um, he actually did not come out until I was 18. And so I've always been very close to my father. But I, I would say that after that experience of him coming out, I would say that my father and I have become even more closer. 
And I think one reason is because when we talk about our experiences growing up, me growing up having a disability and him growing up trying to identify his sexuality, mm-hmm. there's some common themes. There's the feeling of having grown up where we felt like outsiders, where we felt like that we didn't quite fit in and we weren't quite sure whether we should be ashamed of our identity or embrace our identity and um, accept that as a part of who we are. And so I think in having those shared experiences, it's really been very enlightening for me. It sounds like the two of you have a great relationship and that there really is a commonality to your journeys. I know for myself, when I was younger and I knew I was a lesbian, but I wasn't out as a lesbian, um, there was this sense of almost feeling like an alien, like Mm -hmm. everyone else kind of knows what's going on and I feel a little lost. Um, And so I can imagine, given your description of what it felt like, growing up as a person diagnosed with autism, feeling a bit like an alien, I bet you and your dad have a lot in common along those lines. I think in certain aspects, yes, um, even though we may not completely get our, you know, our situations, but I think as far as the feeling of feeling like that, um, you know, embracing diversity, feel, you know, understanding that um, acceptance is crucial to our well-being and our happiness, accepting each other. You had mentioned because you are a cisgender woman and you are married to a man that people may make some assumptions about you. Do you ever feel like you experience any invisibility as a queer woman? Not, not in healthcare per se, but just in general. Because your queerness may not be apparent, I don't know if that question makes sense, but it's just something that I'm I'm thinking about as you're talking about your experience. It it actually makes complete sense. I would say so. Just to disclose, my spouse and I have actually been in the public eye off and on for the past eight years or so, and as a couple. And I would say that having that involved in being in the public eye makes it even more difficult because we have received some criticisms um, that say, and, and I think it's very valid concerns and criticisms that are brought up that in our disability community, we need to bring more diversity into the spotlight. And I completely agree with this. With, with that, I have been labeled um, as straight heterosexual um, with among those criticisms. When I see those labels, I, I feel um, there's a part of me that's invalidated. And I think when you're called out publicly, it's even more difficult to manage and to really get a sense of Trying to be at peace with yourself when you are under the public eye, especially if you are seeing things that are not true about you and where people make claims that they don't take the time to get to know you or understand you, to understand that 
Well, yes, just because I am a cisgender woman married to a cisgender man, that doesn't mean I'm heterosexual. At the opening of the episode, when we talked about labels and that people, you really can only choose your own words to describe yourself, but when someone else puts a label on you, they're really taking away some of your power. And I think when someone sees you and your husband and labels you as straight, in my opinion, it's really disrespectful because, you know, your identity is as a queer woman and sexual orientation is very much something defined by the person having the experience. It's not about who you are, who you're partnered with in this moment. It's, it's so much bigger. So I'm sorry that you've had that experience. It's, I, I hate seeing that happen. And I think as part of the LGBTQ community, my experience has been that I think sometimes folks who aren't in the community assume that everyone in the LGBTQ community is like best friends and we're all so good to each other. And we're not. I think sometimes um, uh, we're, we're unkind. There's certainly a lot of biphobia um, a lot of a lot of racism within the LGBTQ community. We struggle with lots of the isms that me- and ableism that many communities struggle with. But that tendency to label someone who's partnered with someone who was assigned the other sex at birth, that tendency to label people as straight without them having the choice of labeling themselves is really unfortunate. And I'm sorry that you've had that experience. Well, this this kind of um, ableism and um, you know infighting also happens within the autism community as well. Um, oh, interesting. Even among autistics as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think because of the diversity of the autism spectrum, hmm. so people having experiencing autism very differently. So some of us may experience it less intensely. Um, like myself, perhaps, what some people would say. And then there's other people, um, like my brother, who experiences it a lot more intensely. So my brother actually doesn't speak or write, um, and he has fully supported living uh, setup. And I find that even within that, it is similar to the LGBTQ community, that among that group, there are also some people who are jerks to each other (laughs) and um, people that are just um, not being fair to each other and and cruel. So, I I mean, that also exists within our community as well. Isn't it horrible? It, you know, it's, it can be so sad when you think about having to fight ignorance outside of a group, but then really we're all human. So we're all deeply flawed in our own ways. And just because uh, someone identifies as LGBTQ doesn't make them fabulous and fair and kind to everyone. So it is, it can be exhausting to fight internally in a community and externally. Uh, And it's helpful to know that the same kind of thing happens within the community of people with autism. I mean, we're all human. So it, it makes sense. In many ways, it doesn't surprise me because anytime you have a group of humans together, we all, uh, we all have different ways of seeing the world. I actually have struggled a lot more with the infighting that's within the community than actually trying to seek understanding from people from outside the autism community. That's is, fascinating. It's, it's odd to say that, but I guess in my personal experience, um, that, that has been the case, um, which is quite sad because I think 
you know, when I have struggled to um, try to fit in with the world and when you think you can resort to a community which you think would embrace you, um, there are people, if you find them, that will be wonderful and supportive mm-hmm. and embracing, but there are also some some darkness in there as well, mixed in with the beauty of fitting in with a community that's you think you can relate to. I know we see that in the LGBTQ community in that sometimes people will have an idea about the right way to be a lesbian or the right way uh, to be a bisexual person. And so we, we can end up imposing a really narrow set of expectations on each other that is difficult to fit into. And it sounds like some of that kind of behavior happens within the community of people diagnosed with autism as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you tell me about a time when you felt like a healthcare provider reacted differently to you than you think they would have if you weren't a person diagnosed with autism? Say in this scenario, if they knew I had the diagnosis or... Let's say that they don't know that you have autism. Does that end up impacting how they react to you or... I'm not doing a good job describing my question. Have you ever disclosed your autism to a healthcare professional other than a therapist? You know, um, in my adult life, I have chosen not to disclose outside of, say, a mental health provider, like a therapist or psychiatrist. But because of the public exposure that I've experienced, once in a while, it actually gets discovered the other way. And sometimes that actually might be a positive. Uh, so the a quick example I'll give you is um, last week when I was actually just going in for a routine cleaning at my, at my dentist. Uh, I remember the dentist had come to me and it just asked me how I was doing. And um, she, it's funny. She actually sees both uh, both me and my spouse are, are her patients. And uh, we've been going to see her for several years. But, of course, in this situation, I, it was never a, felt like I had to disclose myself because I never really felt it was relevant. But she started to ask me, your husband had said that you had an issue with sensitivity to lights. Is that correct? And, and I said, Yes. Did he start talking to you about this? She's like, oh, that's right. And then he has an issue with sounds. And then she started to disclose about how her, I guess her young son has to cover his ears whenever um, the toilets would flush in their house. Then she's proceeded to tell me how she, how she knew it was, had discovered all this was that she had come across um, our interview on the Washington Post that was published last year. <laughs> and um, I, I just, it again, I had no idea um, and just had seen our photo and the, the, the article and thought, oh, these are my patients. And so... It was, I, and that this was the first time I knew that one of her kids was also on the spectrum. And so having that kind of icebreaker conversation. Um, That's really amazing. That's a great story. Yeah. It kind of gave me a little bit of encouragement that there actually are, it's actually not so bad that your healthcare provider perhaps knows about you because it helps them to understand you better. If you ever decide that you 
want your healthcare professionals to know how better to care for you, but you don't necessarily want to disclose your diagnosis. You could always say to them or try and see how they react. Do you mind if we dim the lights? Harsh lights are really hard for me. Or um, do you mind not yelling? You know, I do better with softer voices. And just, just see how they react. It might be a great, like, tiny experiment to see if they would be supportive. It would be like a partial disclosure. Exactly. Um, yes. And that's sometimes I do practice that. The last uh, time I went to a doctor just to get an annual physical exam, there is a section in the, the patient forms where you actually have the option to list if you need any sort of accommodations. And just as a, as a, as an experiment, I actually listed, yes, I would like to have a room that has a bit of dim lighting, um, that's kind of more quiet. And I remember turning that paperwork in, but I don't think they ever looked at it. Oh, no. <laughs> As you were saying that, I was like, well, please tell me well, they didn't put you in a bright, brightly lit room. Well, I mean, it was just, it was just like any other kind of experience I've had with a, at a doctor's <laughs> setting. But the, the point is, I think because I don't look like I have a disability on mm. the surface, too many people, I think, is just go ahead and assume that I don't have a disability. And that's where it's tricky um, when you have what a quote unquote invisible disability, because people don't realize the challenges that you may have and experiencing internally. When you took a real risk enlisting the accommodations that you wanted to have made and to have them not look at it, I bet that didn't feel great. I am definitely not going to see this uh, healthcare provider again, um, <laughs> but I, I just, I, it was not shocking or surprising to me, but it was still just, it's something that I, I just kind of wish people were able to pay more attention to mm -hmm. that one cannot assume that just because maybe on the surface level, we appear typical, I uh, quote typical, it doesn't mean that there are certain challenges and accommodation needs and support needs that we may need to depend on others to help us with. None of us are independent. We are all interdependent one way or another. That's well put. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for being on MDASH. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really, really enjoyable conversation. Thanks, Lindsay. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For show notes for today's episode, visit www.em-podcast.com.